Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me is... Devendra Hardwar. And joining us today, you've seen her film writing at The Guardian, Variety, and Vulture. She's also the host of The Canon, as well as a new podcast with Paul Shear, Unspooled, Amy Nicholson. Welcome back to the Slash Filmcast. Amy, how are you doing today? Hi, guys. It's awesome to be back on with y'all. It's great to have you back. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, and you are launching a new uh, new podcast with a, another wildly successful podcaster, Paul Shear. <laughs> so tell us about Unspooled, this new uh, show you're doing. Oh, my God. I'm really looking forward to it. The whole premise, you know, Paul Shear does How Did This Get Made, where he specializes in the worst movies ever. And I do this show called The Canon, where I try to suggest, like, liminal films like let's have a debate does this film deserve to be in the canon of all-time classics but we're doing like these are the ones that are just written down in stone we're doing the afi top 100 we start at one in our first episode citizen kane and then we jump to 100 we jump to ben-hur and then i wound up buying us like a hundred-sided die which is going to start making all the decisions for (laughs) us pretty soon because fuck it let's i like some randomness in this world uh, well, that is super cool. Uh, it's awesome to have two people who I really admire and respect doing a podcast together. I can't wait to uh, to check it out and see you guys uh, evolve the show. Where can people find this podcast? Uh, it's going to be on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. It's part of the Earwolf Network where both of us have our homes already. They're the absolute bestest. We made a poster for it, and I was like, can we please make our poster look super Sunset Boulevard? And they put up with all of my annoying ideas. Um, <laughs> It's great. By the way, I want to say, like, Paul will probably be like, I'm the bad movie goofy comedy guy, and she's the film critic. But he <laughs> has come to every episode we've taped so far with so much research, so prepared. Like, he is kicking my ass in terms of the research. <laughs> like, I just want to say that Paul Scheer is one of America's greatest heroes. Super cool. I mean, we know. We know this, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. We, we, we are already Paul. fully aware <laughs> of the heroic nature of Paul Scheer. So, uh, well... Great to have you on, and yeah, check out Unspooled if you guys have a chance. Uh, it should be pretty awesome. Uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast, the Slash Filmcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. And we have a bit of uh, an interesting episode structure for you today. Uh, all we're going to do during the first part of the show is review the new film, The Rider. Uh, and this is a new film by Chloe Zhao. It's out in limited release right now. Uh, is it, is it, I think it's in theaters in New York and L.A., right? Uh, it's a little bit mm-hmm. of a challenge to get to, but I read from many places that this was uh, one of the best, if not the best, American-made film that had come out in 2018, so I had to check it out. I also had the opportunity to read Amy Nicholson's piece over at Rolling Stone uh, entitled Wild Horses, How the Rider Became the Breakout Movie of 2018. We'll link to that in the show notes. Um, and that was a, a very uh, interesting piece about uh, how this movie got made, and uh, a look at also the director of the film. Uh, how do you pronounce her name, by the way, just uh, to, for the record, Amy? Because I think yeah, you're sure. Her. It's Chloe Zhao, and she's incredible. She's a young um, female filmmaker. She comes from Beijing, and she decides kind of at random that after going to film school, both in well, after studying like politics and social work in London, and then studying film school in New York, she wants to move to South Dakota and just see what the stories are there. And she does. And she's been she's made two films so far just on the plane starring the local kids, the local Lakota tribe. And she's just hilarious. I don't know. I really loved her. Like talking to her was such a pleasure because she's just sparking with life and ideas and and madness. She's really special. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing is uh, Chloe Zhao and this movie fill me with deep um, ambivalence uh, or, you know, uh, because on the one hand, uh, this is one of the best films I've seen in 2018, and I want to do everything within my power to make sure people watch it. But on the other hand, come on, the universe is just not fair. This is like her second film. She made a Western without basically ever seeing a Western before. That's amazing to me. I mean, because when she talks about it, you know, she grew up in 90s Beijing when you weren't watching American movies. You know, they only started to let you watch American movies and like import action blockbusters. Like with True Lies, she said, was the very first thing she ever saw. That's, That's like amazing, her start date of way. movies. I, I feel like True Lies, those movies were like among the things that helped shape my uh, love <laughs> of film. And I love that it could help her to like create a film like this eventually. Yeah. All right. It's well, totally true. Uh, anyway, she's an incredible talent, and uh, I think we have a lot to talk about today. So let's dive into The Rider. 
No more riding, no more rodeos. If you don't stop, your seizures are gonna get worse. I'd sell Gus, Brady. I can't sell Gus. It's not like you can ride anymore. You seen Lane? Remember when he went three for three in McCool Junction and won it? Yeah, that was a good night for Lane. There you go. Sometimes dreams aren't meant to be. According to the plot summary from IMDb, uh, this movie stars uh, Brady Jandro as well as uh, his real-life father and uh, sister, Tim Jandro and Lily Jandro, playing his father and sister in the film. And the plot summary reads, After suffering a near-fatal head injury, a young cowboy undertakes a search for a new identity and what it means to be a man in the heartland of America. So let's start off with non-spoilers and talk overall about what we thought about this movie. Amy Nicholson, take us through your general thoughts. Yeah, well, the movie starts off with kind of a jolt. You know, you have this dream sequence of a horse that's a little haunting. And then and then Brady wakes up and he walks to the kitchen and you see that this is a kid who's like a skinny frontier rodeo kid with giant stitches in his head, a huge bleeding gash. And when I first saw it, I was thinking, how on earth did she get this makeup budget? But it is actually a real gash in his head because Brady is a kid who was a saddle bronc rider. He was riding horses from the time he was 15 months old. He was a friend of Chloe's from her first film. And on April Fool's Day, he gets kicked off a horse that cleaves like a three-inch gash into his head. Like he gets manure and sand in his brain and he goes into a seizure. And that's the real injury. She got him to star in the movie right when he was still recovering. And the whole movie is just from there on. What's a kid like him who lives on a horse going to do about the fact that all his doctors tell him he should never be on a horse again or he will literally die? That is crazy. Uh, Just as a story, the idea that uh, like to have that flash of inspiration to ask someone to be in that in in a film about this topic at a moment in their life that is pretty critical in terms of figuring out where their their life is heading. Uh, So, yeah, it's just the the way this movie came together is kind of insane to me uh, and and, and how closely it hews to the real life story of all these people. Um, But it is a striking opening. And I think uh, Brady is a striking uh, presence on screen. And I think Mm -hmm. a large part of it is because. Most of this movie is quote unquote real. The relationships he has with the uh, people on screen are real. Um, when there, there's this um, moment, or there's, there's moments when he's interacting with horses that are also uh, very realistic because that's him actually interacting with horses. It's not some kind of uh, visual effects trickery. And there's an authenticity to this film that is just very difficult to find in general. Um, Divinder Hardwar, what was your overall reaction to this film? Yeah, I I loved it. Uh, This is something I've been meaning to check out for a while, uh, just after hearing so much of the praise for this movie. But it is really that authenticity that just struck me from it. It feels like a combination of a documentary and a traditional drama, but it just, because it has so many of those connections to real life and to what these characters or what these people are actually going through, um, I think you kind of feel that. And it also really helps that Brady Jandro is just like, he is he is just so magnetic. He is such a like like he has to carry so much of this movie on his own sometimes. And he is a charismatic guy. He's a really like um, noble and just like r- really fascinating figure because he's the cowboy. He was somebody who's chasing that dream. That dream was ripped away from him. And what does he do now? And I think that that conflict is something he's clearly working through in the film and also something, you know, it, he's carrying it over from real life. And I, it just seems like you can feel that completely. Um, well, it reminded me a little of um, kind of like American honey, I guess, like the authenticity of that film uh, just transformed to be about cowboys instead of uh, <laughs> kids traveling, uh, you know, America, but that also had, um, you know, amateurs in it as well. And I, I think you could kind of feel it. Uh, and also uh, I really appreciated how it just sort of, I think reconstructed the imagery of the cowboy and what we expect from cowboys in a movie. Like, you know, he, he cries, he's somebody who's wrestling, he's wrestling deep issues. Um, but it also shows us like this world that exists today. And, you know, people are out there 
uh, on the rodeo circuit trying to make a name for themselves. And there's something both noble and heroic about it and also just like insane and crazy. And the movie doesn't really judge. It's just like this is the thing this guy has wanted to do his entire life. And uh, yeah, it's crushing just seeing him kind of deal with that. Also brings to mind um, Brokeback Mountain a bit, too. Just like another lens of the West that we typically don't get to see. Right. Um, yeah. Just appreciate all that about it. Love this movie. And I wish that. Um, yeah, I wish more people would have the opportunity to see it on a big screen, too. I fear like this will be something people find in iTunes or Netflix eventually. Her first film, her first film is on Netflix right now. And, uh, you know, it's it's a gorgeous film. But there are some cinematography throughout that is just gorgeous like things that it feels like something that you'd see in a john ford film and insane to me that yeah uh, according to chloe Zhao, she she has not really seen many of those westerns just beautiful iconic western imagery so yeah loved it all around her first film by the way is uh songs my brother taught me or songs mm-hmm. my brothers taught me i should say also uh Devindra, i i learned that she actually went to mount holyoke college which was right down the oh, street wow. from where we went to college so. yeah 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 um uh, so, uh, can I get real well, with you guys here on yeah. the Flash? I'm gonna get real, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna get super real. I, when I was in high school, I, I wanted to, uh, or you know, I wanted to do many things with my life. I wanted, I wanted to pursue many things. But one of the things I loved the most was singing. And I know that you know may sound ridiculous to people who have never heard me <laughs> sing or have never you know experienced that before. Um, but yeah, I remember I, I joined like uh, you know all the acapella groups in high school and all the choirs and stuff like that. I remember one year in December, you know, uh, I was part of our high school's madrigal choir, and we sang, we performed sixteen concerts in one month. Uh, one December, I remember counting it and that being like wow. an insane number. There's like multiple concerts a day where we'd sing like Christmas music, uh, and you know it was it was like a huge huge part of my life. Uh, and in college, uh, I discovered that uh, I basically couldn't sing anymore without uh, experiencing huge discomfort in like my like uh, chest area, and mm-hmm. I, I basically was diagnosed with. Uh, GERD or uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease, which uh, you know you can counteract with uh, drugs and stuff like that, and proton pump inhibitors and stuff. But I, I was never really, um, I, I, I never could really sing again without experiencing like huge discomfort and other um, uh, life-altering implications as a result of that. So I, I basically don't really sing anymore. Um, and I know this is like not even close to the sort of physical rigors of what is depicted in this film. But one thing that I think this film captures really well is this idea of feeling like you've discovered your life's purpose right, and right. being unable to fulfill it, right? And there, there is a lot of tragedy and frustration and boredom um, that comes with that. And, uh, you know, I had to like, I had to deal with my own situation and, and getting over the fact that I couldn't do this thing that I truly loved. And, you know, I, I, I've done other things to, uh, compensate for that. You know, I've tried to create music in other ways and, and so on. And so I've got kind of gone through a personal journey of, of that myself, but, uh, you know, I couldn't help but think of that when I was watching this movie. And that's what this character is kind of going through is, he he like loves this thing more than anything else it gives his life purpose and meaning and excitement and he has to struggle basically with whether or not he can keep doing it because of his physical condition uh and i just loved how the film captured like the fullness of that concept and uh and kind of transferred it onto the audience i feel like uh it was really effective in that way beyond that i think mm-hmm. um Everything you guys said is is correct. The cinematography manages to capture uh, the West in ways that are both beautiful and desolate. Um, the performances are uh, like authentic. I think is the word we've been using, and I think you know uh, some of them are stronger than others. But overall, yeah, I definitely. think the decision yeah. to use uh, real life people is uh, like people who who have a real relationship to this actor. I think that was the correct. Uh, correct decision. Amy, what did you think of the performances? You know, I think like it is obvious that these are not professional or experienced actors, but uh, but I, there is that level of connection that you feel between these characters that you might not otherwise. What did you think of it? 
Well, yeah, when you think about it, Chloe Zhao is doing the same thing to Brady and Brady's friends that Brady is doing to wild horses. She's mm-hmm. figuring out how do I shape you? How do I get you to do the best thing for everybody? Like, And so she was saying that part of what even drew her to Brady was seeing that he's almost like a natural director. She would watch him train these wild horses, the ones that you were mentioning that we even say in the film, like he'll take a wild stat, like stallion and he'll figure out how to connect with it, how to make eye contact, how to empathize with it. And that takes almost performance on his behalf. He has mm-hmm. to figure out how to present himself as a human being to a horse in a way that gets the horse to trust him. And believe it or not, the way she explains it, you realize that being a horse breaker is basically like being a director. I mean, I guess some people who've like worked with crazy actors and actresses would be like, yes, I could have told you that too. (laughs) But there's this way of seeing where a person is and helping them unfold their potential Mm -hmm. that I think is really similar between the two of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very well put. Yeah. His sister's just fantastic in this. His sister, Lily, who you mentioned, like, um, who is imagining that she can be a singer. Um, who I believe she has Asperger's, which the film doesn't really approach that. In the, it just has mm-hmm. her be who she is. And it just lets her be the person that she is on camera. And I asked Chloe, like, has she seen this film? And what did she think about it? And she loved it. She said the whole time they were sitting in the theater together, Lily was just like, that's me. And she was super excited <laughs> and laughing at all of her jokes. And, you know, these are just characters I feel like we don't see. Like, Chloe's not coming into the writer with any sort of political agenda, the way that, like, say somebody from the coasts might go to the Midwest and say, let me hear your stories and tell me about who you are. She just looks at Brady as a human being, you know, and she looks at his sister like a human being and she lets them be human beings on screen. And to me, that's just so rare. Like you were saying that this reminds you so much of Brokeback Mountain. And I think it's really interesting that these are two films about mythological figures in America, cowboys, and they're not made by Americans because maybe we can't do it. They're both made, (laughs) you know, by people from Asia. And maybe there's a perspective that they bring where they're able to see them as humans and Mm -hmm. we just see them as icons. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to like the spaghetti Westerns too, right? Is like the Italian reimagining of the West. And I guess we're, we're, it's a little similar, right? This is not the same type of movie, but... I love seeing that imagery just kind of re, I don't know, shift around and reconstituted. I also love the fact that, uh, you know, this is a movie about um, Native Americans. Basically, this is, you know, about a reservation and the film never really spells that out. But you see him, you know, using the resources of the reservation and you see like how their lives are kind of infused with I don't know that culture as well, too. And I found that really fascinating. The movie never really spells it out. But uh, as a culture, like we we haven't really explored Native Americans well in film uh, and in America in general. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, totally. I mean, as sad as I am for David and his singing career, like (laughs) you're you're such a bright guy that you have a bazillion options of of things to do. But here at the reservation, Pine Ridge, where where the movie takes place, it is literally like not even an exaggeration, the poorest county in America. And kids like Brady don't have options like people, Mm -hmm. kids like Brady aren't being told, go to a fancy school. Although he did actually go to a school for a little bit. He went on a rodeo scholarship, but then he got hurt. And it was the same thing with his best friend, Lane Scott, who we see in the film. His best friend, who's a year older-ish than him, was on his way to becoming a great rodeo star because that's the best career path that you're offered. Mm -hmm. And he gets um, incapacitated. Like There's scenes with him in the film where he's wheelchair-bound. He can barely speak. He communicates in sign language. And Brady learned sign language so he could talk to his best friend. But you realize like that was his way out and it turns out to be a dead end for Lane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's something the film captures really well. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, I, I reiterate like I wasn't necessarily comparing my struggles to the struggles of people in the film. Just that like I think it captures this feeling really well. And I think uh, one thing this movie makes really clear is that there aren't that many options, you know, um, for uh, the people in this situation. And, um, and there is this kind of tragedy to this idea that the thing you love the most uh, is the thing that could hurt or kill you. You know, mm-hmm. the th- your ticket out of um, obscurity is the thing that is potentially deadly. And um, there is something really powerful to that idea. Why don't we get to spoilers for uh, The Rider? Before we get to spoilers for The Rider, I uh, want to thank all the people who donated to the Slash Filmcast this week. You can always donate to the show by going to slashfilm.com and using the PayPal links on the side of the page when you click on the Slash Filmcast tab 
on SlashFilm.com. You can also go to PayPal.me slash Filmcast. That's PayPal.me slash Filmcast. And uh, we want to thank Ben Sandy for donating this week. Payare F. from Brooklyn, who gave an extremely generous donation. Sorry if I am pronouncing that incorrectly. Arnold Sang, as well, gave a very generous donation. Mark Isham, Joel H. from Northern Scotland. Thank you so much for your contributions. Thanks also to Thomas Willis. Wyla's, sorry, I'm just butchering that. <laughs> this and, is what I come here for. That's right, that's right. And yeah. William Ellenbark, uh, for your donations at the rate of $2 per month. You can subscribe at the rate of $2 per month. Thank you so much. All the money you donate goes to help us defray the cost of seeing movies and putting on this show. Let's get to spoilers for The Rider starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. Well, he really rides that horse, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done. He is a rider. Um, So I'm going to say also right now, spoilers for The Wrestler... Uh, yes, I'm going yeah, to spoil yeah, yeah. Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler as well. Uh, so if you don't want to hear spoilers for The Wrestler too now, or you know, skip ahead. But yeah, I, I thought this movie was extremely similar to The Wrestler. Did you get a wrestler mm-hmm. vibe, Amy Nicholson? What do you think? I could totally see that. I could totally see that for sure. The the idea of like, where is the limit where you're going to tell yourself you can't go any further? And are you the kind of personality type that even believes in that? It was right. crazy. Is actually Brady is even more hardcore than fictional Brady. Like Hmm. fictional Brady hems and haws a bit about getting on the horse. Real life Brady was just back on that horse right away. And he was like, it kills me or it doesn't kill me. That's fine. Yeah. um, And uh, like at the ending of the wrestler, I was expecting them to have the same ending because I had seen, I've obviously seen the wrestler. And at the end of that movie, if you don't remember, uh, Mickey Rourke's character like jumps into the ring, theoretically to his death. Right, like I think, like you don't know what happens, but there's right. a there's an implication that he he doesn't survive or or ends up in a really bad state after that, and I was expecting the same thing to happen, and for this movie to get even more sad than it was, but then uh, that's not what happens at the end of this film, right? Um, mm-hmm. He, what what do you make of the decision that he that he makes at the end of the film? Like, why do you think he makes that decision, Amy? How how do you interpret that? when he decides to not get in in the rodeo? I think that's his first sign of actual hope for himself that Mm -hmm. we've seen in the film in a while. Because when he resolves to get into the rodeo ring, when he dissolves to take up riding again, it's right after we've seen him contemplate suicide. This is his way of basically going out on his own terms. I think that he's absolutely embracing death at that point. And he thinks, if I'm going to die, I'm at least going to die like this. You know, I'm not going to wither away. I'm not going to be like my dad. I'm not going to complain or be one of those people who just talks about what should have been. So it's weird, you know, because what we see right before he decides not to get into the radio is just him looking at his dad and looking at his sister. You almost can't tell if he just doesn't want them to watch him die or if he's really had a deep change of heart. Yeah, I think for me, um, the entire film is about him. I guess it's more like this is a hero. This is a modern day hero, right? This is a guy where he is in a tough spot and he needs money to support his sister, you know? And what does he do? He gets a crappy retail job because it's just what you have to do because you need the money. Otherwise, the trailer will go away. And I think like I, the film is just building all that up, like his nobility in dealing with that responsibility of taking care of his family um, and basically doing the right thing. And I think doing the, you know, had he gone through the whole rodeo route, that would have been, you know, that would have been a choice for him, but maybe a selfish choice and something that would have, you know, been much harder for his family. And then where would they be after that? So I, that's kind of what I was reading into it. I think the heroism of this character is he's somebody who's always trying to help. Like that's the empathy we see when he's dealing with the horses. And I think that's kind of communicated with how he treats his sister and, you know, protects and takes care of her too. And his scenes with Lane are so wonderful in that yeah, same way. Yeah, he's yeah. encouraging Lane to pretend to ride a horse. Like those that's their real life friendship just kills me. I went after mm-hmm. this movie ended and watched a bunch of Lane's rodeo videos because they're there. He was oh, a real they're guy. On, they're on YouTube, really, you're saying. Yeah. It's yeah. for real. The the footage that you see him watching on YouTube of Lane as a rodeo rider, absolutely true. 
my interpretation was the ending when he decides not to get in in the ring is is him realizing yeah that he has a bigger responsibility than than just himself right that mm-hmm. that he your has life a responsibility to his yeah. family right and and that that's his awakening he's he's deciding he, he has done a very good job so far of being a contributing member to his family but that's him realizing that he can make the most of this life even though he can't do what he wants to to do the most um and it's it's a it's an insane, insanely moving moment. I'm gonna just tell you guys that like I was a weeping mess at the end of this film in a way that I haven't yeah. been in a long time um, to any film. Like I, I can't remember the last time I was reduced to such a mess at the end of a film, and uh, and it's really those last five minutes that do it for me. Is, is that mm-hmm. that realization that there are things more important than him kind of living out his dream, right? That that uh, th- that taking care of his family, being there for his family, not inflicting a horrifying tragedy on his family, is is more important than him getting to do what he wants. That plus the Lane stuff. I mean, uh, one thing that I think this movie also captures really well is this: the, those scenes with Lane are so sad. You know, yeah. the, him them watching the old rodeo days and and Lane. Uh, being in the condition he's in and not being able to do that anymore, um, and it, it reminds it, it reminds me of like what real life like th- that situation in real life. You know, if you're in that situation, um, taking care of someone who can't take care of themselves, you're not in in the moment. You're not like uh, saying how sad it is out loud. You you are at, you're just powering through. You're you're getting through this challenging situation. And there is a stoicism and a nobility to that that I think really comes out in those scenes. Um, yeah. So, I, I'll yeah. admit, at the risk of sounding like a creepy stalker, <laughs> I also went to like Lane's Facebook pages. You know, like Chloe was saying that all of those kids, they live on Facebook because when you're that mm-hmm. rural and that far apart from each other, it's the best way you have of communicating. I went and read like the last two years of... <laughs> Of the updates on Lane's Facebook page, like, seeing how he's doing, hearing, like, his family talk about, like, he made some, like, sounds, like, that sounds like worst day. He's maybe getting his muscles stronger. Because I was invested. I mean, one of the ironies about this film is that Lane was about to get his own TV show. There was a documentary crew following him around because he's a really handsome kid. He was really charismatic, too, in, 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 like, a louder, showier, more reality TV way than Brady is. And when he got hurt, the reality TV cameras just left. And Chloe was saying, this is when the movie starts. What is their problem? Right, right. Hmm. Jeez. Yeah. Um, so, so I think we all kind of had like a slightly different take on the ending, but it, 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 it does really feel like the crucial moment of the film, right? When he, he makes that decision to not go in. Um, did you just out of curiosity? Did you think he would? I, I totally thought he was going in. I, I was like, "This is the wrestler. It's gonna." Be- I really hope they wouldn't because of that. Yeah, <laughs> it's like really sad. I'm just yeah. bracing myself. We've for We've seen how this indie, be. yeah, this like almost uh, cliffhanger indie movie ending before, and I didn't want to see it again, especially because this movie is so different from the wrestler. I think in terms of like who the characters are and what they're going through, right? Yeah, I definitely thought he was going in. I mean, yeah, we went I mean, through like sad horse trauma, you know, which I don't want to. <laughs> even oh, though it's sad, I don't want to talk about the sad horse trauma too much. That, I'll cry, but after sad yeah. horse trauma, I was ready for anything. Yeah, um, and the final shot of this film is so beautiful. You know, it, it, it's like this. Um, uh, it's like a, a vision, right? It's like this vision mm-hmm. of him riding on the horse in slow motion. Like he's not actually riding. It's like he's talking with Lane, and then you cut to this kind of vision of him riding in the horse, and it's just—it's very dreamlike. The score is beautiful, and it just—it's uh, kind of this dream that that can never be true anymore. Um, but that it, it almost says to me when I watch that, like it almost says that there is still something worth dreaming about you know even though the dream can never be fulfilled like the dream itself has its own inherent form of beauty and its own inherent self-justification for being uh almost right. anyway um it, it, I'm, it, I'm like getting going. really really uh, uh poetic and and emotional here but um you know 
Yeah, uh, I, I think the real beauty of the film, too, is seeing him, those scenes of him training the horses. Like that one, that sequence where it's basically he, you know, he steps into, uh, you know, the ring with this one crazy horse. And you realize that this is just a long take of him doing his work. And his work is kind of like magic. And it is amazing to watch the camera just kind of struggle to like maintain like you know what he's doing where the horse is going and the camera gets blocked by the fence and things like that sometimes and i feel like that's that's us you know on the other side of the fence just like peeking in and really wanting to get a glimpse of this um that is an extraordinarily compelling scene and and it does feel like it's happening for real and i think it is actually happening for real yeah yeah, yeah. it is it is it's like watching fred astaire dance you know it's watching somebody do what they're meant to do yeah if, if, if this counts as a spoiler, like if people watch this movie and they're like super invested in Brady, like I feel like I should tell them real spoilers about his life, which is <laughs> he is training horses. That's what he's doing now. He's that's his job. Like that's, that's he's great. he he's doing it. He's running the risk. And also, if you think about his year from the head injury to when the rider premiered at Cannes last year, it's like insane. He got mm-hmm. kicked in the head, and within a, a year, he wakes up from the coma. He proposes to his girlfriend, who you actually see in the movie. She plays his best friend's girlfriend. Do you guys remember the girl with the crazy blonde hair? Yeah. And they're like smoking a joint in a truck. That's actually his wife now. And in the course of a year, they get he gets a coma. They get engaged. They get married. They have a child. And his movie about himself is in Cannes, which is um, it's unbelievable to think about waking up in that hospital bed and then all of this happening in 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. He's had quite a journey. But I mean. His performance is so compelling in this film, it, uh, you know, it, it feels completely deserved. It is really, really extraordinary. So, Any closing thoughts, Amy Nicholson, as we wrap up here, uh, our review of The Writer today? Well, I'm really curious about what Chloe's doing after this, you know, because she's moving mm-hmm. away from this sort of docudrama style, and she's writing a script. She's writing a real period piece script. Um, which all I know about it is that it's about the very first black sheriff in the Indian uh, territory of of what will become Oklahoma. Oh, wow. And she's curious about kind of what this film is doing accidentally. She's curious about us seeing how America really fits together as the actual people, like looking at the people and not the giant narrative strokes. So I'm fascinated to see where she goes. I think she's just such a talent. I agree completely. I want to see what she does next as well. I'm um, I- I'm kind of bummed that this movie isn't more widely available. Like our mm-hmm. the Seattle release was actually canceled, um, what? or, or really? not canceled, but like we don't. There, there's no date right now. As of when I'm recording this, there's no release date for this film oh, in man. Seattle. Uh, wow. So yeah, it's a it's a huge bummer. Um, I was able to get a screener from from the studio, but. Uh, yeah, I, I really want people to see this film. I want them to be able to enjoy it in the theater. Um, and I want, uh, you know, I, I want us to support this filmmaker uh, as she goes off and does even more incredible things in the future. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I was just in Istanbul at the Istanbul Film Festival last month, and the writer also played there. And that was the, everybody's favorite film there. I mean, this film travels to Istanbul, which is wild. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, but not Seattle, I guess. <laughs> not Seattle. That's right. Seattle is too, uh, a bridge too far. Bridge too far. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, I'm Jesse Ware. I'm Lenny, and we're from the Table Manners podcast. And this week, we're sponsored by Uniqlo. I'd really like to bring to your attention Uniqlo Airism. So it's a base layer that releases heat and moisture to keep you feeling cool. So Aerism fabric includes antimicrobial and deodorizing features to help you stay feeling fresh. And Aerism is so lightweight and it's really, really super smooth, which stays invisible beneath the clothes. So you can wear this layer and still be really cool. And it's soft. It's really it's soft. soft. Gorgeous. So discover Aerism now in Uniqlo stores and online at uniqlo.com. Uh, on our review today. Really appreciate it. Um, you can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast@gmail.com. Stick around. We're going to have a special After Dark for you today. Um, and stay tuned also to hear what we'll be reviewing next week. In the meantime, Amy, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Yeah, well, I'm all over the place. I have, oh, I think it should be out today. I have a, a huge print uh, spread, also online interview that I did with John Travolta. We talked for an hour Oh wow! About everything. Um, so that's on, that's variety, and I don't know. I did everything this week from do that to like review the new um, 
Lifetime movie about Harry and Meghan's wedding this weekend. Prince Harry, <laughs> Princess Meghan uh, on the Lifetime channel for The Guardian. So I'm just everywhere. It's easy to find me at the Amy Nicholson. And Unspooled premieres on Thursday with Susan Kane. So I'm excited about that. Extremely Ooh. exciting. Uh, check out Amy's podcast, Unspooled. And also, uh, did you get a chance to ask John Travolta why he was so extremely creepy at his last Oscars appearance? <laughs> <laughs> that is just rude, David. I would never do that. <laughs> uh, I'm just, uh, I'm just kidding. Over, he was like, t- he was touching Adina Benzel's face in a way that I found very uncomfortable. Anyway, what? Um, what? <laughs> yeah. Were you just dreaming that it was you? Um, perhaps, perhaps. Uh, Devendra Hardware. Where can I find more of your work on the internet this week? Oh, you can find me on Twitter uh, uh, at, at Devendra, and I write about tech and gadget.com. Find all my stuff at Dave Chensky on Twitter and also on YouTube at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen SKY. Next week, we'll be reviewing Deadpool 2 on the Slash Filmcast. Look forward to that. Should be a lot of fun, guys. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. We watch the movies, flicks, tracks for the good, bad. It's the Slash Filmcast. All right, Devendra, it's time for the Slash Filmcast After Dark, where we talk about just a variety of random topics that may or may not be related to anything in the show. <laughs> right. Uh, and, yeah, Jeff couldn't be here with us today, unfortunately. he's uh, He's got his hands full with some kids going on there. Uh, but you and I are here. Uh, we're going to talk about Barry, the HBO original series, which had its season finale this week. So we're going to spoil Barry. So uh, a lot of spoilers for things that a lot of people might not have seen this week. <laughs> but spoilers for Barry. At least everybody right. can see this. All you need is HBO. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, so if you don't want to hear about spoilers for this uh, TV show, Barry, that was co-created by Alec Berg, who did Silicon Valley, uh, tune out. But uh, yeah, Devendra, what did you think mm-hmm. of this show? I, I love this show. Like, I was on board from the beginning uh, just because I'm a big Bill Hader fan. I think this guy, you know, he's he's funny. But he's also kind of weird looking like, you know, like something something's going on with this guy. So this funny looking guy as a hitman, I think, is just like a great combination. And, uh, you know, I th- the show started off pretty well, but it got better you know, along the way, like a lot of the side characters, I really love the, uh, the bald gangster guy who has like, no, yeah, Hank, he's, he's hilarious. Like he starts off being like one of the threatening gangsters. And then by the end you're like, Oh, he's just kind of adorable. He's, he's hilarious. Um, I love all the characters in the show. I love like how it is deeply nerdy about movies and, uh, the art of acting too. Like there is that, that wonderful, um, where, where's that from? The wonderful monologue in the Glenn first Barry, episode. Ross. Yeah. And seeing that scene done in the way they do it, I think it's it is just like hilarious on a certain level. Because you've seen you've seen that Alec Baldwin speech quite a bit. And never like that. Yeah. yeah um I, but I, yeah, overall and I I thought the show just got stronger and stronger. Uh but yeah, what did you think, Dave? I, I really loved it. I, I think it took a while for me to understand what the show was about. You right, know? right. I didn't know what it was doing. I didn't know like what it was trying to say about this character or the characters around him. Um, and I think it really figured out what it was about by the end. <laughs> I think it really figured that out. It uh, is a very complete story. Unlike a lot of first TV seasons. Yeah. Uh, I think that, uh, it's ultimately like, tra- first of all, like a lot of really, really kind of sharp commentary on acting and also mm-hmm. Hollywood, um, even some hashtag me too stuff in there. And I think that it's uh, – you know, I, I spoke with Stephen Tobolowsky about uh, how well this show depicts acting. I, I think we all agree that a lot of the acting you see in the acting class is terrible. You know, it's, it, it, it is kind of meant to be bad. And, like, uh, there is something both um, extremely funny but also, like, kind of sad and – Oh, yeah. Uh, in a way that, like, I didn't necessarily feel great about because, like, mm-hmm. these people are like, trying to achieve their dreams and we're meant to kind of laugh at them a little bit. This is the real La La Land. Right, right, right exactly. Basically. And it, it felt yeah. kind of, uh, 
occasionally mean-spirited in that way. Uh, mm-hmm. But what is great about the show is you see these people becoming better actors throughout the season. So at first, it's kind of like, oh, most of them are terrible. But as the season goes on, uh, you know, Barry becomes a better uh, actor, and so does um, his uh, girlfriend. So mm-hmm. I-, I really liked how you see them develop. But yeah, there is a lot of, as, uh, as Stephen Toblowski put it, like low-hanging fruit when it comes to ridiculing acting class that uh, yeah, most the, definitely. the show but definitely takes. Yeah. I think there is there is a weird poetic melancholy to it, too. Like uh, one of my favorite scenes in the season uh, is uh, Henry Winkler's character, Jean Cousineau. It's a great name. Um, him going for an audition, a really simple audition and not getting it. And I thought that was that was a really interesting scene to put in there, right? Because so far the show has built him up as being the sort of like, you know, he's somebody these aspiring actors are kind of worship. And, you know, they clap for him. They buy his book. They take his class. And who knows how much they pay for this. But he is basically a failed actor. And he's just trying to get by in his own way, too. And the way maybe sort of like the writer, actually, the way he sort of like accepted that fact and like he's going to go for this audition. He probably won't get it, but he's going to do it anyway. Um, I thought it was kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, uh, that was a great scene. And you kind of see, you know, it was juxtaposed with the scene where he goes into class and everyone claps for him. Right. And right. you kind of have this understanding of that people can have like different domain, like in one universe, you are uh, respected and admired. And in another universe, you are the lowest of the low on the totem pole, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that juxtaposition, that tension is really interesting, and I think the show uh, did a lot with it. Yeah, but, in a weird way, like, he can't ride the horse, right? But he can train the horses, bring it back <laughs> around. Right, right, yeah, no, t- totally. I, I, I think that's not uh, an un, uh, un like, a it's, a, it's <laughs> a deft analogy. But uh, the ending of the show, you know, season one, it basically makes... Barry out to be a monster, right? I mean, that's, he, yeah, yeah, that's but he always of, was, right? Uh, well, I think there was doubt as to whether he was or whether he's being influenced by um, his the, the people mm-hmm. around him, like Fuchs. You know, I think is there's always this question of like, is he really a monster that puts self preservation above all else, or um, was he trying to extricate himself from a situation that like others had helped create for him? Right, right. And I think the answer that is brought up at the end of this season is, no, he's he's kind of a monster. And um, that final sequence is truly heartbreaking uh, with oh, yeah. him in the woods with uh, the detective and, and trying to figure out what to do. Really well, uh, well edited and shot. I mean, you know, the reveal of like the gun mm-hmm. hanging on the tree and all that stuff, uh, I thought was just, just really well done. Um, and just what Bill Hader completely owning that scene, too. is just like, you know, admitting it, but also like fully prepared to, yeah, make the, to take things hot. Basically, if, yeah, uh, stri- if he's striking this group. balance between yeah. uh, being threatening, right? And but also trying to make amends, trying to uh, diffuse the situation, right? Because uh, mm-hmm. there, there is this like you know she's, he's saying like can we please not do this and underneath that it's like or else right um, so really really brilliant work all around mm-hmm. um, James Poniewozik at the New York Times wrote this interesting piece about uh, this show and how he he wished it would end like season two has already been picked up but this uh-huh. does not feel like a show that can sustain itself for like eight seasons you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Barry goes through a full arc this season, right? And so, is there any? He's he he's basically saying like, I, I wish the show this show was so good in its first eight episodes. I wish it would end after the eight episodes, and like, yeah, then then we don't need to deal with like a second season that's not as good, um, or that that tries to extend this concept past its shelf life. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any opinion on that? Like, I I, I, do, I, I do kind of, yeah, 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 I kind of feel that. Yeah. Um, just because I, after watching the finale, I'm like, that okay, that is a perfectly wrapped up story. Right. It's like I a miniseries, you know? Like, the right, miniseries yeah. is over. Yeah. Or, like, a, the British series do this a lot, too. Like, there have been a lot of, like, great new British TV shows that have been six episodes, and that's it. Yeah. That's all you get. And I felt fully satisfied with the story and everything we saw from these characters. I'm, yeah, I'm, trust these writers like alec berg by the way is kind of on a roll like between silicon valley 
Uh, I was watching the Silicon Valley finale and then this one and both like, you know, written and directed by Alec Berg. Like this dude is just on fire at the moment. So I fully trust that they will find something interesting to say. Um, but this first season is just so kind of perfect in its own little thing. I'm, I'm worried about where it's going to go. A couple other things I want to call out in terms of awesome moments. I thought the penultimate episode, right, when he's mm-hmm. in the car with his friend. Oh, man. Yeah. And uh, he decides to like execute his friend. It was. I think a, that's when we knew he was a monster. By the way, like that right. was that was it. So for me, like that final scene with uh, the detectives, like, oh, we know where this is headed. Like he yeah. wants to be out, but they will always pull him back in. I mean, he, that was his self-preservation kicking in, right? Right. And uh, to some extent, like you know, the, the friend was not completely blameless. He was <laughs> he was mostly blameless, right? He had a family, like he didn't mean to do anything. But he, yeah. he 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 did like introduce Barry to this like extremely uh, aggro friend of mm-hmm. his, and like that kind of uh, got them into a bad situation. So there, you know, there is kind of that. Um, but yeah, he was he was mostly blameless. Um, but I, I still could justify that. Oh, he's just Barry's just looking out for himself, um, and yeah, uh, this That's is like still monstrous though. Like yeah, I understand yeah. the self preservation aspect, but that is like that is cold blooded, man. That is like your friend. You met his wife. You met his daughter. But what's great about that is that you fully understand why Barry went through with that, and also the slow horror of that scene when the friend was like, he's just freaking out. I was like, I gotta tell somebody. I gotta tell somebody. Um, I have a kid. I have a wife. And then Barry's like, why did you, he shouts? Like, why did you just say that? Right. And then his friend is like, oh. Like, he realizes uh, I, what is at stake. It, it is a yeah. brilliantly acted scene. And with like, all the, the whole roller coaster of emotions happens in that scene. Mm-hmm. And, like, the friend goes from being, like, relatively naive to, like, understanding exactly what's going on. Um, it's shocking and and uh, mm-hmm. and really well done. So I can't the 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 episode right before that too. I really love just for that uh, that amazing cliffhanger ending, and uh, another amazing bit of uh, you know content from director Hiro Murai, who is also having a moment. Yeah. So just shout out to him for you know this is American Atlanta and everything, but. I, I, I didn't expect to see him directing Barry, and for that particular that one moment, it's like half a second of bullets whizzing through the cars and blood splatter, and the car kind of shifting. That is such a that is like a perfect TV episode ending moment, and yeah, one of those things I will remember for a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anything else about Barry? Any other moments uh, you want to call out? I mean, I think there's just. Um a bunch of great stuff like the mm-hmm. the show riffs a lot on the idea of uh the mob person who likes torturing people you know i thought that stuff was really really funny um mm-hmm. and, the and twin brother the twin Come brother on. and like all that <laughs> stuff is so it's pretty uh pretty amusing and, and it's a show that really rewards uh people who are really into like random ass pop culture references like you and me right. you know right. like uh uh seals fly like an eagle from sp- the space jam soundtrack you know uh <laughs> it's it's funny references that, that somehow feel organic to the characters uh in the story and uh, i i think yeah very very memorable performances all around so yeah. uh that's barry and if you're somehow listening to this without having seen the show you should totally go check the show out it's on i'm HBO. sorry yeah because this is something that you can really spoil because there's some big moments here that are surprising <laughs> oh well we did warn people. We did warn people. Yeah. Uh, all right. Devendra, anything else you want to talk about? Um, mm-hmm. You had a chance to see, like, the new Surface Hub at Microsoft, <laughs> right? I did. And, uh, yeah, I'll talk about that briefly a little here, I guess, just because it is it is an amazing idea for a device, just because it is a giant screen. If you remember the last Surface Hub, it was like a 55-inch or an 85-inch collaborative thing. Yeah, it's, just, uh, it's basically they, like a massive computer screen that's like 60 yeah. inches tall. And uh, like, I just saw the trailer, the, not the <laughs> like the the ad. There's for a trailer, it. the yeah. trailer for it, and it looks incredible. It just is like mm-hmm. I was so stunned by it. Anyway, yeah. Well, it, so this one's also a big screen, but you can rotate it uh, into a portrait mode. And just as somebody whose life is kind of dominated by screens and, you know, uh, all sorts of display tech, I found this a really cool thing. So if you live in a, if you work in an office where you rely on this sort of technology for video conferencing with people, as I do, uh, that stuff is usually terrible. And this thing just kind of looks amazing. Like doing a video chat with somebody in portrait mode, it's like you've teleported them into your room. 
and just something you could never really do until you were able to like move that screen. So yeah, cool thing. Check out my reporting gadget about that. Yeah, and you can get one for the low price of I think like nine thousand dollars, right? So there's no there's no pricing yet. Like this well, is coming. Uh, I think year. the original Surface Hub is like yeah. nine thousand dollars. Or the original 7, was nine thousand for the fifty five inch. Uh, yeah. Google has one that's also a fifty inch teleconferencing device that's five thousand dollars so i i hope would hope microsoft is going to be a little more competitive there i have not um, seen one in the wild yeah. yet but it does look really well nobody uh, i do i do feel a little lucky like i saw some prototypes in action and it works um so that's cool but yeah they're i don't think they're even out in the wild for other people to test yet uh yeah yeah we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see i mean it looks like really exciting and uh, I, I saw you really go on a rant recently. Like I think it was today about like Apple uh-huh. products compared to like uh, how like Apple's whole uh, modern day desktop lineup is kind of a disaster these days. Well, mainly the MacBook Pro because I just uh, I upgraded to one of those at work, and it's one of the new ones with the uh, the touch panel sensor thing up top. The, the touch, touch bar, bar, yeah, yeah. And that terrible flat keyboard, and the keyboard just feels awful. I think I could get, I could live with it. Uh, I, I'm definitely amused by the fact that there's a class action lawsuit about uh, how those keyboards are kind of defective for people. Uh, Apple made that change apparently because they were trying to avoid, uh, you know, dust and garbage getting stuck underneath your keys. So they create this really flat keyboard design, and it turns out it is prone to failure uh, quite a bit. And to replace it, uh, you basically have to replace like the whole top half of your MacBook. So it's not just like a simple keyboard job. Um, so yeah, that that thing disappoints me. Uh, I got one for work, and it has really shit battery life. So I'm just, it's it's kind of sad seeing like how far that's fallen. Meanwhile, like Microsoft is like pumping out pretty decent hardware these days. Like yeah. I love the the Surface laptops. Yeah, it's crazy. It's yeah, it's cool. Like Microsoft feels like they're the only ones pushing forward the PC as a concept. So, right. uh, and it's kind of interesting reversal to see, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the Microsoft hardware is often is modern day. Microsoft hardware is a lot better. Um, yeah, it's so. better. And it's pushing boundaries in ways like what is, there was some news about the next Mac pro, right? Uh, maybe we'll hear something next year. Thanks Apple. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, let me ask you this question. Do you, are you into the 4k Blu-rays? I've, I've, I've recently mm-hmm. been like selectively acquiring the 4k Blu-rays, right? Yeah. I get, I, 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 maybe I'm going to buy like six 4k Blu-rays this entire year, you know? So I'm right, not like right, going right. to buy 30, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's like, I just got phantom thread on 4k Blu-ray. I'm playing that in my Xbox one S, you know? Right. Um, and uh, uh, probably going to get a couple other things on 4K Blu-ray. But, like, yeah, what's your what's your mm-hmm. physical media policy situation these days? Basically, I've been uh, – I think I've talked about this before. Like, I just haven't been buying that many Blu-rays these days unless it's, like, a movie I truly love, something I know I'm going to rewatch quite a bit. Uh, but, yeah, if I have the opportunity to buy a 4K Blu-ray for a particular film, like, yeah, I'll go for it because that will include the Blu-ray. And you have, like, this pristine copy that is, in some cases, like, better than how it would be projected – in your local theater, you know, yeah. like that concept is just amazing to me. So even if, um, you know, I'm just playing it off in Xbox one X now, but, uh, you know, who knows if this format will survive. It doesn't really matter though, to me, like just to have this 4k copy right. in my hand. Um, you know, it's pretty useful. I think like it's, it, at least for movies that mean a lot to me, I think it's great to have like the perfect edition of that movie. Yeah, it's like I don't o- I don't always go for the 4K Blu-ray, but mm-hmm. when I do, it's for something like, you know, Blade Runner or um uh yeah, Phantom Last Thread. Jedi. Yeah, yeah, Last Jedi, like, you know, one, basically like uh, like these big event films, you know, uh and I'm not going to not going to buy that many of them, but I I, I do mm-hmm. feel like Yeah, I mean 4K is probably going to be the last physical format right you know like this, the last physical yeah 4k blu-ray like yeah it'll be the last physical format and also if you have a 4k tv like i you don't buy blu-rays like try don't waste money on blu-rays just because the 4k editions of those movies are around they're probably streaming like in many cases a movie will be available in 4k and not get a physical release in 4k but you could get it on itunes or video or something and that case like you may want that version of the movie rather than the blu-ray um, because I think HDR is like a significant upgrade in many cases. So if you want the HDR in 4K, you may just have to go digital at some point. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've heard like the digital versions aren't quite as good as the discs, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. So that's why like I, I go for the discs, but it is kind of it is kind of uh, a bit sad. I know we've talked about this a few times before in the podcast, but it's kind of a bit sad. Like this is this is the end. You, like you can see it dying as a form, you know, four K Blu-rays. You can see it dying because. Who who like I don't know anyone who owns any 4K Blu-rays. Yeah, it was dead from the like I wrote this article two years ago. Yeah, 4K Blu-ray is dead before it even began at Engadget, and uh, like I'm fully invested in the platform just because I want these editions of the movies, but I it's not going to survive. Yeah, I, well, it just years, and more you know? importantly, like there will never be another thing. There's not going to be. Right. I mean, there might be 8K Blu-rays as like a, you know. Uh, high-end you know archival stuff archival or like business if you're like a if you're a company that specializes in exhibition or something maybe Mm -hmm. um but there's not going to be like a mass consumer um if for physical format that follows 4k blu-ray um yeah as far as far as i can tell right now you know yeah most likely honestly i don't even think like 8k screens in homes will be a thing that's going to be pretty widespread. Right. Like that people can not even appreciate 4K right now. Right. right? Like right, right, right. people don't even need it right now. Right. Um, so, so it's uh, we're in a weird point where, yeah, your movie tech, like, you know, maybe the tech itself will plateau, but maybe the screen tech will shift into new format. So maybe something like LG's wallpaper uh, technology will get cheaper and something you could just like stick to your wall, you know, or maybe projectors will get better. And uh, those are already pretty cheap and good looking. Um, I think more people would really appreciate having a projector if they can just find a blank wall or somewhere to to spit out an image. Um, those short throw projectors that you just like lean against a wall and it spits an image straight up. Those things are like magic. So we're gonna see all sorts of like new uh, screen technology that's gonna make all you know all of our lives a lot better. Uh, I think that's gonna be more important than 8K or anything like that. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I mean, I, I told you about the Nebula capsule projector I have, right? right that right. I can project on my ceiling. Uh, I, I really did feel like this is the future. Like, mm. what what I mean by that is, it, like, in you know, five ten years, when that te- technology becomes more miniaturized, more high fidelity, I could see people using this regularly to project things onto walls. Yeah, it'll be um, like a part of your phone. Like we've seen, like some of the Motorola, the Moto Z's had projector extensions, and uh, they were pretty good. Like you could just you know start projecting something and it'll spit out a decently fifty, decent looking fifty inch image, uh, in a dark room. Like so, we were already there, but it'll just get cheaper over time. And also, want to point out, like I've been testing out the Oculus Go, which is a standalone VR headset, and you know just sitting on my couch or in my bed and watching Netflix on that thing is a surprisingly good experience mm. too. Uh, yeah, with with glasses on, is that with glasses on? Like yeah, I, I was comfortably watching Netflix for like two hours. Um, and what's cool is that it has uh, built-in speakers, mm. so the speakers will make noise outside of the headset. So it, it'll annoy somebody if you, you know they're sleeping right next to you. Uh, but for just sitting on the couch um, or just slipping it on in an office or something, it's a pretty good experience. Yeah, very cool, very cool. You know, Devendra, um, uh, one thing I wanted to mention uh, that we maybe want to reflect briefly on is. Uh, a few people have called out that uh, mm-hmm. we are coming up on the Slash Filmcast's 10th anniversary. Oh, man. On May 28th, uh, 2008, mm-hmm. was when uh, the Slash Filmcast had its first ever episode. Uh, and that was a uh, review of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> we will never forget. I'll never forget that one. Yeah, that was pretty, uh, I didn't pretty, hate that movie. Pretty yeah. rough movie. Pretty rough movie. But... Um, yeah, I mean, as this, as this uh, moment comes up, it does remind me of uh, what a massive impact on my life this podcast has had. Mm-hmm. Um, Most definitely. I feel, yeah. I feel like that's uh, true for you as well. Um, yeah, like yeah. without this show, like I, I don't think I would have moved to New York. It took me a while, honestly, to move there after college. But yeah, having this podcast and having the access to movie screens and things like that in New York was a big reason for moving there. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's been a really awesome thing in my, in my portfolio when I've you mm-hmm. know been looking for jobs as well. Uh, but I, I don't know; I don't have that much profound to say about it. Uh, like I, <laughs> I, I, I have, you know, um, 
be like the Coen brothers. Just like don't don't comment on your work. It's like the work <laughs> speaks for itself. Yeah, right? I, I think know. I think the work speaks for itself. I mean, like we're, we're talking about format changes and stuff like that. And, you know, the the show has has been in existence through many uh, format changes, through many like life changes for uh-huh. uh, you and me. And um, I, I, I guess I would not, I would not have predicted all the things that have happened in the last ten years. You know, we've seen like uh, slash film as a site has grown dramatically, and love all the content that's out there now. You are now a major force at Engadget.com. Angie Han, who we uh, were in the same dorm room as, or yep. dor- dorm um, building as in college, uh, is now uh, a, a great. Uh, film Twitter and film, you know, online film presence in her own right over at Mashable. Um, yeah, moved to LA and is yeah, just moved to LA. Already, yeah. So, so it's yeah. just been um, it's just been really interesting to see uh, how everything has changed. I think the mm-hmm. like if I, if I'm to reflect and like think about like what the biggest change has been, it is honestly it is in the world of podcasting. You know, it is that when we started this thing, not everyone had a podcast, right? right. And so asking someone to be on your podcast um, was like a fun thing for everyone. You know, like right. it's like a, yeah, yeah. everyone can enjoy that. And like, oh, I didn't have a podcast. But like now the barrier to entry is so extremely low. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't mean that to be like in an insulting way. I mean, like there is this app like Anchor. You know, Anchor.fm, like they, you you have this app and you can create a podcast. Uh, and mm-hmm. within like minutes, you know, you can create a podcast. And yeah. um, that just wasn't the case back then. And and so so now, like, we used to have a, a guest on virtually every single week. And uh, eventually, due to life changes and, and a variety of other reasons, we stopped doing that. But one of the reasons is because, um, like, People have their own podcasts that they're trying to build up and and establish. You know, that's true. And yeah, yeah. it's like I think because like you're doing more of the business side of things now, Dave. Like just in terms of your career, but because I'm doing media stuff, uh, I do find myself on a lot of podcasts too. So right. I really enjoy doing that and hopping on and um, you know helping out uh, new fledgling shows. Uh, but I have to say, like I, I think one of my most memorable experiences of doing this show. And getting into podcasting was like just, you know, becoming a part and guesting on um, shows that I grew up watching. Right. And listening like Leo Laporte stuff, like being on Twitter, you know, a couple of times and uh, getting to visit uh, the Twit house before they moved to another house. Yeah. Twit stands Uh, for This Week in Tech, by the way, for those. Yeah. 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 I was on like one of the last shows of that original Twit house. Um, That stuff was really cool and, you know, really meaningful to me because I follow tech as much as I follow film. And uh, I, I don't know, just just great to see. Probably would not have happened if we just didn't start talking and arguing about movies. Yeah, I mean, it's also been fascinating to see like all the the people that have uh, been on the show and how their careers have really taken off. You know, mm-hmm. most prominently, I can think of like Dan Trachtenberg, Ryan Johnson, uh, Joseph Kahn. You know, like people who. Uh, have really uh, shared with us their time and and their um, and, and been mm-hmm. gracious about like sharing with us like about their craft and uh, and who are all now like extremely successful you know and um, it's kind of uh, been a cool experience to be like a, a tiny 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 part of that uh, that journey for them just like um, and, and and our audience being able to kind of see all these people grow professionally and, and root for them, I think has been has been really delightful. So it's been a crazy ride. Um, I, I do think I wonder what it would be like going back and listening to some of the older episodes. Right, I'm terrified to do that. I also don't think our feed supports that, so maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, but uh, if you've been part of, uh, if you've listened to an episode, which by definition you are, if you're hearing this. <laughs> Then we really appreciate it. We really appreciate you, uh, however long. If you're a first-time listener, if you've been listening for, since the beginning, uh, appreciate you being part of this crazy journey that is the Slash Podcast. Maybe we're going to do more tenure stuff uh, or more reflections later on. But I wanted to just yeah. like you know bring it up because a few people have brought it up to me. I, we're not going to do anything special. Like like I said, I, I think yeah, I was targeting yeah. episode 500 uh, as like <laughs> maybe we'll do something live at that point. 
uh, or something along those lines. So but, a year uh, from now, basically. Uh, yeah, basically. Yeah, 40, <laughs> 40 weeks or so from now, we'll we'll try. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's been a uh, remarkable series of events, and uh, have been have been grateful for it. Um, so anyway, just wanted to. Yeah, it's been a wild ride. So good. Yeah. <laughs> just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, okay, Devendra, you want to give a shout out to this movie, and then we will wrap it up. Yeah, um, I did see You Were Never Really Here, Lynn Ramsey's new movie uh, starring Joaquin Phoenix as a, uh, I guess, sort of a, like a hitman or some sort of like cleaner. He's Fixer, a guy who gets shit done. Yeah, yeah he's, he gets things done. He will take out people and rescue people and do things like that. And uh, just want to say, like, this movie is remarkable. If you have a chance to see this on a big screen, uh, definitely do it. Because I think it inverts the idea of, of these sorts of films. Like, there is... There's violence there. There are a few set pieces throughout, um, but they're done in such a way that they just feel completely unique and different. I think in as much as like how um, what Chloe Zhao approached uh, a Western, like this movie approaches doing an action film. Yeah, the mo- I would say like the modern thriller almost, right? Like, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm reminded of like it's it's very much like Leon the Professional or something like that. Um, it's very it's like so cinematic, so gorgeous. And Joaquin Phoenix, uh, if if you didn't believe it already, uh, this movie proves that he is one of the you know probably the greatest actor working right now. He's he's just a powerhouse in this film. Uh, but there are a lot of things I didn't expect too. Like there's a tenderness to it. Uh, there there's like. Uh, some of the film focuses on the relationship between Joaquin Phoenix's character and his elderly mother. And just like little hints of things like that. Um, I, I think just show like the importance of having <laughs> different voices and people making uh, movies and genres that I think are getting kind of stale. Like we've seen this sad hitman movie before, but I don't think we've ever seen it in a way like this. So yeah, just wanted to throw a shout out. Like this is an incredible film and also crazy to me that it's, um, based on a book by Jonathan Ames, the guy who created Bored to Death and, mm. you know, wrote Bored to Death. Like, that is that is a weird juxtaposition because, like, one thing is a fun romp through, like, you know, film noir in Brooklyn, and the other is a, you know, hard-boiled uh, thriller that is ultra-violent at times. Um, I just found that, like, a really funny connection. Uh, this movie, like... I would love to talk about this like at a deeper level at some point. I think if you break down like the plot machinations of this movie, it can be kind of crazy. Uh, but it works on like a grand operatic scale. I think like it turns a small story into something huge. Um, yeah. Loved it completely. All right. Well, that's, you were never really here uh, directed by Lynn Ramsey starring Joaquin Phoenix. I think it's out in limited release right now. Yeah. Uh, and it's a movie that Devendra highly recommends. And I think that's going to wrap it up for us today. Kind of a shorter episode, uh, but hope you enjoyed hearing a bunch of random reflections on doing the podcast and HBO's Barry and also modern technology. Um, so <laughs> Everything. Devendra, thanks for hanging out, uh, Devendra, and thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll see you next week for our review of Deadpool. Good night. <laughs>